Greetings, everybody, and welcome back to the Story Matters podcast. Okay, so before we get into the book of the week, I do have to get some stuff off of my chest. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I always seem to get my best ideas when I'm either in the shower or when I'm driving. And uh, so I use a little record feature and I record myself which I'd like to get into the podcast, but the audio is terrible because I'm in a car and you have all the ambient sounds of cars going by. And so I decided that when I would get home, I would re-record this. And I did that. And then there was a problem with my microphone. And so this is the third time I have to, I have to get this out, but maybe, you know, third time is a charm. Basically what I want to talk about is being Jesus Yes, I am basically the Christ, uh, the Messiah, the, the second coming. But I noticed uh, a weird phenomenon. The further away people are from my social circle, the more interested they are in Enya. All of my biggest fans are people I've never met. And I've, and I've made some hardcore fans, like you know, people who have bought my book repeatedly in order to hand out copies to their friends. I've had people sending me uh, fan letters, create fan art of my characters. Uh, one guy proposed to make a line of action figures. But people in my immediate social circle, it's like they don't even know I'm a writer. A lot of my family members don't read. You know, My siblings don't read. My parents never read anything. But I have cousins, and my nephews are in their mid-20s, and one of them is engaged to be married, and they read books. And the subject of the new Hunger Games book came out, the prequel to the Hunger Games. And they were just talking about how, you know, good of a series it is and how much they really like the Hunger Games. And throughout this entire conversation, nobody brought up the fact that I've devoted my life to writing and that just recently I sold the family business, which has been around for 50 years, and I sold it after working there for 20 years myself, to devote my life entirely to writing books. And this does not enter into the conversation at all. I've told them I'm a writer, and I've actually given them some of my books to read. You know, maybe they're embarrassed because I'm just such a, a bad writer. They don't want to bring it up. They don't want to embarrass me and tell me how bad of a storyteller I am. But again, when you see my ratings on Amazon on Goodreads, I have over four stars on both. I've gotten you know, good reviews from Kirkus. All through my life growing up, all my professors and fellow classmates were always amazed. But when it comes to people that I know, no interest whatsoever. My niece, my brother's daughter, is a huge reader. I didn't even know this. I went into her room the other day on New Year's and I see that she's got a huge bookshelf with nothing but fantasy novels. I was shocked. She's got Fourth Wing. She's got uh, all the Moss books. You know, and the kind of books that she's reading are the kinds of books that I write. And it makes me think about Jesus. Um, and not just Jesus, but all religious figures. There's one thing they have in common, no matter where they come from in the world or no matter what the time period is. And that is that the people that knew them didn't think they were special. So Siddhartha Gautama was born in India. He was of the Hindu religion. But the majority of 
Hindus or Indian people do not believe in Buddha. They're not, they don't consider themselves Buddhists. So Buddhism really flourished in the Far East, but it didn't flourish in India, which was the birthplace of Buddha, which is kind of weird. You're like, why don't people from India? They, they should be the, the biggest fans of Buddha, but they're not. It had to be the Chinese. Jesus was a Jew. He was born in Israel. She was of the Jewish faith. This is the biggest religion in the world. And everyone in the region is a follower of Jesus. I mean, Egyptians and Greeks and Europeans and Africans, there's Christians all over that area. But the one area where people are not predominantly Christian is in Israel. They don't believe Jesus was divine. Again, why is that? Even in the Bible itself, it talks about how the people of Nazareth, where Jesus was from, Jesus was not actually born in Bethlehem, he was born in Nazareth. And the people from Nazareth didn't believe that he was special and that he could do miracles and they didn't follow him. It was the people outside of Nazareth. This is the same thing uh, happened in Mecca. Muhammad went around Mecca preaching his gospel and people didn't believe in Muhammad. And eventually he got kicked out of Mecca and he had to go to a, another city called Medina. And in Medina, he found followers. And then he had to take his followers, an army of followers, back into Mecca and force people to convert to Islam. The same thing happened with Joseph Smith, who was originally from New Jersey. Nobody in New Jersey believed in Joseph Smith. And so he had to move to New York. And then from there, he got kicked out. And then he kept moving to Chicago and to different Western cities until eventually he ended up in Utah and he founded Salt Lake City where finally some people actually believed in his story about golden plates and that was the beginnings of Mormonism. So basically what you see all throughout history, no one seems to believe that greatness can come from someone you know. If you know that person, if that person is your brother, your sister, your mom, your uncle, your cousin, there's no way that you can bring yourself to believe that that person you know can achieve anything of any significance. Great people always come from far away. It's kind of like the grass is green on the other side phenomenon, but this is for people. It's like great people can't come from this side of the grass. They have to come from the other side. And this isn't just for religious figures. This is for artistic people. You know, Walt Disney's wife was not at all interested in Disney World. She thought the whole idea was silly. The lead singer of Queen, Freddie Mercury, did not impress his family. They didn't even know that he was a great musician until he did his show in London. You know, the whole world, millions of people were watching and cheering him on. And then finally... His parents, his family was like, wow, Freddie Mercury is actually something special. You know, Elton John's father took no interest in his music. And even after Elton John became famous and he became the number one musician in the world, and he went to his dad and he's like, hey, dad, I'm the number one record seller in the world. And again, his dad was like, whatever. This is a bizarre phenomenon. You see it over and over and over again. The people closest to you simply do not believe you. Writers and artists and musicians need support. We all need emotional support because we're trying to do something that is extremely difficult 
And we are constantly having to fight with demons of doubt. We're constantly fighting our insecurities. Every day I wake up and I have to convince myself that what I'm doing is worth doing. If you open almost any book, and I don't care who it is, it could be the most famous author in the world, to open up any book and you go to the acknowledgments page and every author is saying the same thing. I want to thank my wife or my parents or my friends or my colleagues, whoever it is, for believing in me, for showing me the support that I needed to get through the process of writing this book. They all are saying the same thing. We need emotional support. Whether you're a success or not, whether you sold a million copies or one copy, every person needs that support because it's a thankless job. It's a job where you might not get paid for it. And it's a job where you put in hundreds or thousands of hours, two to three years, without knowing if you're going to get any money out of it or whether anyone's going to care at all. And that's why writers so badly need emotional support. But too often, the people who are really close to you simply cannot believe that you can be the next J.K. Rowling. You could be the next Stephen King. You could be the next person who writes a book and that book becomes an HBO special like Game of Thrones and everyone in the world talks about it. People's attitudes create a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? They so vehemently refuse to believe that you could achieve something in your life that they actually kind of make it happen because they discourage the people who are trying to do something great in their lives. My father, you know, he died last year never believing that I was ever going to become a great writer. I wanted to prove it to him before he died. That was one of my big goals in life. And now my mom, she's 86 years old, and she's starting to develop some dementia. And I'm afraid that she will also never see it happen. And I know she doesn't believe in me becoming a writer because when I was trying to sell my business, she kept saying, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And every time I would say, well, I'm going to write. I'm going I'm to make money writing. She would look at me like I was insane. It would be like telling her, yeah, I'm going to make money by you know, playing the lottery. Like she looked at me like I was insane for even suggesting that I could be a writer and make a living off of that. And that's very discouraging. And she's always looked at me like that since the time I was a kid. And I'm 50 years old. If you know someone in your life who is aspiring to be a writer, a musician, an artist, you got to show them that you have faith in them that you believe in them, that you believe in their vision. And if you do that, it's so much more likely to happen. It's not guaranteed. Nothing in life is guaranteed. But if you show people your support, the chances of it happening are much, much greater. Today, we're talking about Isaac Asimov's foundation. And I have to say my feelings about this are mixed. Authors like Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, Robert Heinlein, Philip K. Dick. It's this group of deep thinkers, science philosophers, who were writing in the 70s uh, and in the 60s, whose stories really gave us a lot of great ideas and made us think deeply about life and the world and the impact that scientific innovation would have on culture and society. I really loved Arthur C. Clarke's 3001. That's one of my favorite sci-fi books. 
I also enjoy uh, Philip K. Dick. I wasn't as big of a fan of Robert Heinlein, which is funny because Heinlein is actually a nudist, and I'm a nudist as well. So you would think that he'd be my favorite sci-fi author, but for whatever reason, I just didn't really like uh, Stranger in a Strange Land as much as uh, most other people did. Uh, but I really enjoyed Isaac Asimov's iRobot. I thought that was really good. And I also remember when I was in middle school, I read a story by Asimov that really blew me away. I don't quite remember exactly the details. This was like 40 plus years ago. But I remember it was about a, a girl who grew up on this planet and she was in school and I guess for whatever reason, she was punished and sent to detention and she wasn't allowed to go outside. And there was sort of this once in a generation thing that happens, an eclipse or a sunrise, or it was something that just never happens on this planet. And it was really interesting because it made you think about the world we live in and the things that we take for granted being earthlings that perhaps on another planet, something like rain or a sunset would be this mind-blowing event. But for us, it's an everyday experience. So I really liked that uh, story. And I thought, man, Asimov is great. So I was really excited to read Foundation. The thing about Foundation, though, it's definitely one of the weirdest books I have ever read and would never be published today. It is very, very unlike anything that's trending or that's popular today. I don't even know how you would query a book like this to publishers or agents. There's no main characters in it. They appear for three or four chapters, and then you don't see them again. We don't really know them as people. We don't know much about their lives. We don't know much about their feelings. Uh, there's really hardly any drama surrounding these characters. They exist as a mouthpiece for the author to express his ideas. It's almost like when Galileo was forced by the Catholic Church to create a fictional account of his astronomical observations. Galileo created this character named Simplicio, who represented the simple-minded ideas of the Catholic Church. And he had another character that was basically just him speaking through this character explaining his scientific discoveries. And Galileo did this to get around the fact that he was condemned by the church. And so I feel like Asimov is doing the same thing here with Foundation, expressing his ideas. But they're pretty much all the same character. They have the same personality. They have the same way of speaking. They have the same mentality. They all speak in these perfect, complete sentences, these, these well-thought-out speeches. Writers are um, frowned upon if their characters aren't really being individuals. I know that when I'm writing my books, I try to think about each character, who that character is, because no two characters should be alike. But with Asimov, I just feel like the characters are just, they are the author. However, uh, it's beautifully constructed but again, it detracts from the realism of the story. I think a little bit of traditional storytelling would have gone to great lengths to, to make Foundation a little more relatable and a little more endearing. I think in many ways, Asimov is the counter opposite of Stephen King. Stephen King is not that great with the big ideas, but he's really great with 
creating characters that you feel for and you really get into the hearts and minds of, of King's characters. But Asimov, just, he's not concerned with that. And so this book really stands on the strength of its ideas. But even there, I'm not fully certain what the ideas are. I feel that Asimov has almost a realistic, hyper-pragmatist approach to life. I think there's a quote in there where he basically says that you should never let morality get in the way of doing the right thing. And what does that mean? Because you would think, well, isn't doing the right thing what is moral? Unless his narrators are unreliable, but I don't think they are. I think Asimov would argue that sometimes you have to do something that might not be moral to get to a good end result, because the ends justify the means. And I'm not sure I agree with that. I think, for example, if Asimov was given the trolley problem, I think he would always pick the pull the lever to save the five people. But I think this is kind of a naive philosophy, because the problem is that a lot of people will do horrible things and have done horrible things throughout history, believing that what they were doing was the right thing. And that's another big problem that I find with this book is that all of these characters are all acting out on what they believe is justified. But in real life, it doesn't always turn out perfectly. You know, sometimes someone will do something that they they think their actions are justified, but in the end, it turns out to be a disaster. And I really had to think to myself, well, what if these characters, they acted on their convictions, but in the end, there's disastrous results. And this is why we have a legal system and a code of ethics and a code of morals, because it's just too easy in real life for an individual to evaluate their own actions and say, well, I did what I thought was right. So again, I'm not saying that you should never violate the law and establish ethics. I think some of the greatest people who ever lived, like Martin Luther King Jr., they broke the law in order to achieve the greater good. But that's not always the case. And I think it would have been more insightful if Asimov had kind of shown at times you'll uh, care to do the right thing, but sometimes you'll mess things up. Uh, Apple TV has a show about this. And I think it's funny because all the people that complain so much about the Rings of Power and Wheel of Time, I mean, I read like half of the Wheel of Time and I watched the show and I felt that even the show did take a lot of liberties with the book. It's pretty much the same. And same with Rings of Power, even though the Rings of Power isn't based on anything that Tolkien wrote, I did feel that it was at least in keeping with the spirit of the appendices that you could find in in the end of the books that, that Tolkien published. But when it comes to foundation, I have no idea. I have no idea where they came up with this stuff. The show has absolutely like nothing to do with the book. It's like they took the basic premise of the book and they just ran with it. They just created an entirely new story and an entirely new characters and everything, where are the people that are complaining about the show? Where are the people that are saying, this show has nothing to do with the book? The departure that the show makes is ridiculous. I almost feel like, is this even the same thing? Is this even in reference to Asimov's foundation? 
If I didn't know that the show was based on the book, I wouldn't have any idea. They could have named the show something else, and I wouldn't even know, oh, this is Foundation? I didn't realize that. I mean, the only thing that's similar to the book is you have the character of Harry Seldon in the beginning making the prediction that the Empire is going to collapse in 500 years. But after that, the show just takes a radical departure. And also, when people talk about wokeism and gender swapping, typically I don't really care. But in this TV show, they took an old, white, aging politician and they turned him into a young black girl who isn't even a politician. She's like a fighter. She's like a warrior with like a gun. This is not the same character. When I was watching the show, I kept saying, who is this character? Is this? I don't, I don't recognize them at all. And at one point, I'm looking at the subtitles and it says Harden. I'm like, wait a minute. That's Harden? That young black fighter woman is um, this supposed to be this old politician? I mean, I guess they could have made it an older woman politician and maybe an old black woman politician, but these characters are nothing alike. Again, I mean, I'm not one of these people to jump on the anti-woke bandwagon. I'm actually opposed to the anti-woke crowd, but this is such an extreme example of departing from the source material for no reason. It's completely unjustified. What about ageism? Do we not believe that old people can contribute to society? Do we not think that politicians are characters that they use their minds to solve problems? Like that's not interesting enough. We need to have characters with running around with guns shooting. And that's the only way that we can make a story interesting. I mean, it really flies in the face of everything that Asimov wrote. It really goes against his entire style, the themes of his stories, because the stories are always about these characters that find nonviolent ways of solving problems. It's very much like how Star Trek got turned into Star Wars. This is kind of what Apple has done with Foundation, which is very depressing. But I also realized that Apple needed to make the show a little more interesting, because if it was just a show where characters just kind of talk to each other around the desk, it would be really, really boring. And so they, you know, they include things like the space elevator that gets attacked by terrorists and the space elevator blows up and collapses. And that's a very cool, epic moment. It didn't happen in the book, but it's a really cool thing. It reminds me actually of Arthur C. Clarke, who he put a space elevator in 3001. And that was interesting. And it was actually played a role in the story. But here, They're just kind of shoving it in there to make it more visually appealing. But the book, you know, there's no battle scenes. There's no no action. Very little happens. The whole book could have been done as a stage play, to be honest. I almost feel like this. the book could have been written like the way J.K. Rowling, she released Fantastic Beasts as a screenplay. And I really criticized her for that. I thought, that's so lazy. She should have at least written it as a novel. But this book, Foundation, could be written as a screenplay, and I don't think you would lose anything because almost all the book is just dialogue, just people talking to each other. Arthur C. Clarke and Philip K. Dick, they did similar things where their stories are very idea-driven, but I feel that they did it better. They blended their ideas more into a narrative, whereas Foundation, it's just like, here's a bunch of ideas. I mean, it's even worse 
than the three-body problem. And I, I complained also about the three-body problem. Even the author said that he's less interested in story and more interested in science. And I'm thinking, that's great. Maybe you should write a science book because uh, a novel should work as fiction as well. And I feel that foundation kind of fails at the fiction part. And the ideas part is great. Asimov, I think, could have done a better job taking the, these ideas, really interesting ideas, and working them into a narrative. The main idea is something uh, he calls psychohistory. And it's this idea that if you study history and statistics, it really should have been called psychostatistics, but if you really look at statistics and you have enough data points about the past and the present, you can accurately predict the future. And I do believe that there's a lot of validity to that. I think one really good example is the rise of Trump and the radical right and white nationalism and the radical evangelical movement. I think all of that stuff was easy to predict. And in a way, I actually did predict it. After 9-11 happened, I told my wife that what scares me about the 9-11 attacks, even though it was, you know, it was a very sad day for America, but I didn't worry that Islam was going to take over the United States, right? Islam was not, is not strong enough to conquer the United States through military action. But what did worry me, this attack by Islamist fundamentalists would wake up the sleeping giant that was radical Christianity. Now, this isn't to say that we didn't have radical Christianity before 9-11. We did, but I felt that 9-11 really empowered them to have more influence over government. What 9-11 did is it made people very paranoid about foreigners. It made them much more uh, nationalistic. And really, this is, I think, what led to the rise of Trump and Trumpism. So I think if 9-11 hadn't happened, I don't think we would have Donald Trump. So I think that's a good example of how you can predict maybe not an individual's life, but I think it's pretty easy to predict what a very large population like a country is going to go through over the course of time. And so I felt like this was a very believable thing that happens in the story. Harry Seldon, who is the heroic mathematician, predicts that in 500 years' time, the empire is going to collapse. In order to preserve humanity, technology for, for the future, to prevent humanity from returning back to like a Stone Age time period, they have to gather all human knowledge. And essentially, they create this galactic encyclopedia, which is very much like Wikipedia. But Foundation was a little short-sighted because... Asimov, he thought that this would take like hundreds of years to gather all human knowledge into one database. And what we've discovered is that in reality, it only took probably like a couple decades to pretty much have all human knowledge gathered into one place. And oddly enough, no one cares about Wikipedia. I think Frank Herbert, who wrote Dune, he had greater foresight. Frank Herbert was looking 10,000 years into the future. And the, the ideas that he came up with, for me, was much more plausible. It seems like Asimov can't imagine of anything more advanced than nuclear power. He keeps talking about nuclear power, like this is the thing that really has a fundamental change on, on civilization. He pretty much separates 
different planetary civilizations on whether or not they've achieved nuclear power. The, the pre-nuclear power states are these barbaric planets, and the planets that have nuclear power are like more advanced. These are like the advanced civilizations. And I think this is incredibly naive on his part. Again, maybe Asimov didn't have the foresight that other authors had, but when you look at countries like Pakistan and India that have nuclear weapons, and you're like, these are not advanced civilizations. I mean, Pakistan is a country with some very primitive ideas, and yet they have nuclear power. And then you have countries that are very uh, advanced in other ways, but they don't have nuclear power. This is a galactic civilization. So you have a planet that doesn't have access to nuclear technology, but somehow they can hop on board the spaceship and fly to a different planet. Well, how do they do that? I mean, if they don't even have nuclear power, how do they figure out interstellar travel? That's not something that we can do now. We've had nuclear bombs for 60 years, and yet we're, we're hundreds of years behind when it comes to traveling to another planet. So it doesn't make sense to me how Asimov thought a civilization that can be interstellar would somehow be barbaric because they don't have nuclear weapons. Like, I don't know if he just didn't really have a good grasp on the limits of, of technology of, of even his time. I think he should have known better. I don't know. I mean, you got to wonder, like, what creates the thrust for these ships if it isn't something like, you know, antimatter technology, which would be even more advanced, possibly thousands of years more advanced. The other thing I felt that was a little bit dubious is this idea that without a galactic encyclopedia, all of humanity would collapse following an apocalypse. And I don't really see anything like that happening historically. I mean, the only thing that ever happened like that in human history maybe is the destruction of the Library of Alexandria. You could argue that perhaps there are certain countries in medieval times that weren't quite as advanced as the Romans, that the Romans knew how to do things. Um, and the ancient Greeks knew how to do things that people in medieval times didn't quite know how to do. I mean, you could make that case. However, it didn't take hundreds or thousands of years for humanity to get out of the Dark Ages. And the Dark Ages weren't quite as dark, even though there was kind of a collapse after the Roman Empire. We didn't see humanity revert to barbarism to the, to the extent that Harry Seldon suggested it would after the empire, the galactic empire collapse. I think if the galactic empire would collapse, I think humanity would be okay, especially if you have all these planets spread over the galaxy. You're going to have planets that, for the most part, have fairly advanced technology. I don't think we're going to go back too far. Let's say America collapses tomorrow. I don't think we're all going to be living in caves. I think that's a little bit extreme. Perhaps a nuclear apocalypse would set us back. But again, we're talking about a galactic civilization. So even if one of the planets gets wiped out by nuclear war, all the other planets should be, should be okay. Asimov comes up with this idea of science as a religion. And I think that's really interesting. And the idea is that religion is a powerful force that people use to control societies and civilizations. But the problem is oftentimes religion leads to some dangerous consequences. You know, for the people that, that don't understand science and the scientific method, 
controlling them to believe in something that's less destructive than religion is a good idea. Uh, Using the cloak of religion to kind of smuggle in scientific ideas. I I think that's really interesting. Like you need someone like Neil deGrasse Tyson to tell people that this way of thinking is correct because people tend to idolize individuals more than concepts. Even if they don't understand how the science works, if you have a priest of science just telling people, okay, trust us, gravity is a real thing, then the lesser-minded people will accept it. You know, same with subatomic particles. I mean, subatomic particles, quantum theory is something that it's so removed from everyday experience that it's almost, you have to take it on faith. And perhaps in that way, Asimov was a little bit ahead of his time. Finally, I felt that the book got very, very political. It's like reading about your trade relations with the United States, uh, dealing with Russia and China. Another form of control is using technology to control civilizations. And basically, this is something that happened in Africa, where the European settlers that came to Africa, they introduced the African states to factories and corporations and, and to big industry, but they didn't give them the resources and the knowledge to create their own industry. They, they sort of set that up themselves, like the Dutch in South Africa. They set up these industries, and then they pretty much made the African states beholden to the technology that they were pretty much given. And so, you know, instead of African tribes making their own clothes, they have to go to a store and they have to buy, you know, Levi's jeans from America because this is what they've been taught to do. And so this is another thing that Asimov predicts will happen in the future where you have these more advanced planets going to these lesser advanced planets and using technology and industry as as a way to control them. But the problem is that in the book, the characters who do this, they're viewed as the heroes. They're the protagonists. So it'd be like writing a story about European settlers in Africa and saying that the Dutch are the good guys because they're manipulating the African people there. Like, Like that's not some people that I want to root for. And this is the exact opposite of what Frank Herbert did in Dune, because in Dune, there's a similar plot device where you have the planet of Arrakis that is being manipulated by these powerful industrial forces that are uh, from different planets, and they're using their technology to control the Fremen people who are the natives of Arrakis or Dune. But eventually, the Fremen rise up and they fight against these industrial forces and kick them off their planet. They, they take control of the, of the spice trade of their planet. And so it's kind of the opposite in Foundation, where it's the industrialists are the good guys. So that's pretty much all I have to say about Foundation. I will say that I really wanted to like it more. Primarily because so many books that are published today are just so formulaic. They're chasing trends. And it seems like if a book doesn't have a young romantic subplot, if it's not about a young girl discovering her powers or something like that, 
the publishing industry isn't interested. And so something like this, I can't imagine being published today. So that's why I really wanted to like something and promote something that was different, because I would like to see the publishing industry become a little more open to books that are driven by ideas and not just... uh, But unfortunately, I feel that foundation fails as fiction. The first thing that an author needs to do is he needs to tell an engaging story. And only later can they sort of smuggle in those ideas. And if you are looking for something that is different, I highly recommend the Anya series. You can pick up the Anya series from Anya.net or NickAlamodos.com. You can read excerpts and poems and short stories. You can read bios. You can read about the history of Anya. You can read about the different locations and characters that make up that world. You can also watch some videos and listen to some music that is inspired by Anya. And you can order autographed copies of the three books that are in the series. But if you like, you can also go to Amazon and get the books in Anya series from Amazon. It's available in Kindle and paperback. And I also have a hardback edition of The Princess of Anya. Or you could get The uh, Feral Girl, the illustrated edition. And there's a gamer edition for people that really like role-playing games. So that's it for me. I've been Nick Alamonos. Thanks for listening. 